Hello, welcome to the Slow Goods Podcast, where we love to talk quality and design, but most of all, we love to hear the inspiring stories of the masters of these spaces. Join me, your host, Logan Ratcliffe, as we talk about Maine, adventure, business, and we explore with these creators the different aspects of quality and design and, and everything around them together. Today, I thought I would just talk about the origins of the Rope Company and Slow Goods Podcast and, and why we're doing these things and what makes us us, what makes us tick, why we're here, what we're doing, um, what we're passionate about. Our story starts, so my, my wife and I really started this business together and, and, and I'll talk about uh, kind of her side first. We're, we're from, we're from Midcoast, Maine. She's from Friendship. I'm from St. George and we're both grew up in generational fishing families, uh, some boat building, some rope making, uh, Hannah's side, her dad owns a lobster wharf. Um, she is a lash part of the lash brothers boat building who was famous for a while still is. Um, and I just really appreciate her family. They're very special uh, to me. And it's a large family. Her grandfather had 13 brothers and sisters. And uh, so it's a huge part of friendship. And it's a really special place down there. And um, just really kind, giving people. And um, a lot of captains in her family. And Hannah has a great natural eye for design. Uh, making things beautiful. And styling. Um, I'm just so thankful for her in many ways. Um, she's just my this, this amazing wife God gave me. And, you know, what her part of this company has been, you know, when we first got into this, there was <clears throat> people making other doormats, maybe similar products, but it was a lot of bright colors and um, coastal niche um, type of stuff. And I mean, we were able to, too, um, but we got into really a lot of more design forward oriented colors. And I would say she, she has really been a huge, the probably the main pers person that pushed that forward. And she also just has a eye for detail and intention. And I go to her for so many things, uh, just, uh, hiring and talking with team members and she's got a different emotional intelligence than me and everything. So I just, you know, we're really a team and, um, we have two girls, Tess and Caroline, three and five, and they're just a, a, a huge blessing. And then my side is, uh, like I said, I grew up in St. George, actually really close to Radcliffe Island. We do not own the Island. There was no Radcliffe Island. Island. I, I do not know the history of why I was named, um, same as our last name, but but anyway, I grew up right on the ocean. And from the little point we were on, we are on this kind of cove. And there was six or seven houses we could see, maybe eight. And all but one of those were all Rackliffs. And it was a good little neighborhood. And there were some kids around uh, my age. But this cove would drain pretty much all the way out every day 
and then where you, you could see the you could still see the ocean, but this cove right in front of us, a little island in front of us, two little islands right in front of us. And it's funny thinking now and looking back, you didn't realize, you know, that was just normal to me. And now I'm fully understanding like how how amazing that was and what a blessing it is. So that was the scene, and, and I'd always hear stories of the uh, my great grandfather's brother, who owned the kind of the furthest point on the mainland. There, they used to have a fish ware out there, so they would build this big, uh, like basically at a wall. They would put these boards and run a wall out in the water, and when the tide would come in, it open up the door, and as there were so many fish back then. Herring would come in or Manhattan or whatever it was, which lobstermen call pogies. Nobody really knows why they call them pogies. They're called Manhattan. But, uh, you know, they'd fill that up and that would be their bait to go haul their lobster traps with or to sell to some of their friends to go lobstering with. And so I'd hear about those wares a lot. They would have other ones off other islands. Uh, but, but it was a working a working family and team. There was two or three little wharfs in that, in that cove and they'd do everything there and they would bait up their boats there, put their bait there and they'd make traps. When they made traps, it was a, like a family day or a neighborhood day. They'd all get together. Those were wooden traps back then and they would tar, they would, um, bend wood and, and anyway, put the traps together, but it was quintessential nostalgic fishing area village. And most of it's still there today. Some of the wharfs have fallen in a little bit and obviously they're not used like they used to. They're bigger wharfs now. Um, and that one's really tidal. It's difficult, but, uh, you know, most of it's still there today. My parents are in their st same house. The houses are there. They're not all owned by family anymore, but it's a really neat place. And um, and then my wife, where my wife grew up, she grew up also right on the water. Her dad decided to build a commercial lobstering wharf uh, right next to their house. So, and that's where they still are today. There's you know, a house and then 50 feet away is the ocean on a nice little beach. And then further down the point a little bit is a, a nice wharf that comes right off and they have 10 or 12 guys there that go off that wharf. So it's, it's very busy. And, you know, it, it's just so neat. Her brother goes lobstering and there's a wharf right next door and another wharf. And it's just a very tight lobstering community. And then she has all that heritage uh, with boat building and um, duck decoy making. And I think there's also some captains in there. And, uh, but these quaint local main towns are just, we, friendship is more of a town. You could walk around and go to a store and, and get things. Um, where I grew up, there was no, you could walk to your neighbor's house, but you had to go to town to get supplies. So a little different. Um, but just really special places and with special kind people. 
you know, just helpful people. And I only tell that because that's what we all love. I feel like that's what everybody loves and that's the ideal they want to get to. Um, that's the nostalgia of Maine. That is, uh, really, you know, trying to get to peace, tranquility and contentment and being outdoors and working with your hands and, um, seems like what we're made to do. And it was just such a, a blessing as a child to, to be able to live through that. And hopefully Lord willing, our, our kids will be able to do the same. And, uh, I think they're mostly doing that now. We're, we're not right on the water. We're in friendship now. We do plan to build something, um, closer to the water. But every time Hannah and I go somewhere together, uh, special, it's always basically in a, just a coastal town in Maine and, you know, we love it. We're thankful for it. My dad's side, I'm fifth generation lobster. My dad was a lobsterman. His dad was a lobsterman. His dad was, you know, um, and there's boat captains in there, um, different things like that. But basically just the quintessential, you know, living on the main coast, lobstering family. And then there's my mom and her father. So my mom's father, huge influence on, on many, many people. He hit, uh, my great grandfather came over from, from England. Um, my grandfather's father came over from England after the war and he used to work in lace factories and he was an excellent lace maker. He came over here and started making lace. It's a very involved process and lace was a really high quality, uh, item. And, uh, so anyway, he was, he was good at making lace, but he was not a great businessman. Uh, he wasn't very good with people. He was kind of mean <laughs> by many accounts. Um, but, uh, so my grandfather, you know, apprentice worked in that lace shop his whole life. This is in Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, he would always talk with his dad. He was kind of a, my grandfather had just, he was very capable and, and smart. And he, uh, so he kept talking to his dad about how, what he should be doing differently. And he, his, his dad actually sent him to New York to work with um, the, the Jews and the Jewish culture people there because they really knew New York, uh, not New York. They really knew business. So he went up and apprenticed with them, learning about the lace industry and business. Um, so then anyway, he came back to continue working at his dad's mill. So I said, hey, dad, we got to do this. We got to do that. And he goes, and his dad said, well, if, uh, if you're so bloody smart, why don't you run the company? So he said, well, I will. And he's 18 years old. So part of the hard knocks, especially back then, but, but, but with him and, and this family, um, my grandfather went to make, make payroll on the first week and there was no money in the account. And he said, dad, what's, uh, what's going on here? And, um, he said, well, if you're so smart, you can run the company, you know, try running it without any money. And, uh, so it was, it was hard learning, you know, back then. And, um, so my grandfather 
found out a way with some of the guys he worked with in New York to borrow some money. And his dad never asked him how he got it, but he kept the company going. So um, anyway, Lace Industry, he runs that company for a long time, uh, moves it up to Maine, <clears throat> where they used to vacation and they loved, and uh, close to where I live now, and actually where my, my father's rope mill um, stands now. And uh, so he moves it up here. They move the whole family up here. And um, they just about get it going. These are huge machines, a lot of moving, and the lace industry starts basically falling apart. He gets replaced by a cheaper, not as well-made item that looks kind of similar. Um, so that kind of starts going by the wayside. My grandfather was just this very just innovative guy. What is the next thing he can make? And he was really capable. Um, so he had already been starting on some other things. He had started getting into rope making. Um, they also, him and his brother and his dad got into, in the lobstering industry, how you haul traps up from the bottom of the ocean. You know, the rope is connected with a buoy down to the, how you haul that up is a, now is all hydraulics and we just call it a hauler in the lobstering industry. So, uh, the hauler we have now is actually my grandfather and his brother, they invented together. I mean, there was already that type of hydraulics around and similar things, but they made it specifically for the lobstermen. So they had that going to, um, I'm not sure the timing of all this, but it was around the time the lace industry died. And, um, so they got that going they had a, a rope company, they had just started called Crow Rope, and that was like from scratch. My grandfather found this old guy in Rhode Island that kind of knew how to um, make rope. And they first used kind of, uh, I think, recycled materials and, and spun it. And it, the rope was okay, but he learned how to make rope. And uh, so I believe that was in the 60s or 70s. So in the 70s, they really get Crow Rope going. That, that is uh, my grandfather's rope company. And his brother takes a hydraulic company. He takes the rope company and he goes on to um, grow it. And to the point where in the mid eighties to the mid nineties, they were the biggest rope manufacturer, I believe. I, you know, don't nail me down on a solid quote here, at least in, in the state, in the United States could have been worldwide. I, I'm not positive, but um, you know, they were a large company. They had over 500 people and, and right here locally in Maine, which is really neat. And, uh, so they made a, a lot of products. I mean, they sold from everywhere from, uh, chain grocery stores to local lobstermen. And, uh, that's what he, he loved to do. He was always trying to do, make the next thing. And, uh, when that got to be too much, he sold that company around 1995 and, my father, um, then a few years later with all of my grandfather's knowledge, which wasn't his father, but, um, his father-in-law and some of the people that used to be part of Crow Rope, um, he still, they could see that there was still this need, uh, especially for the local market for, for good, they called pot wop, um, lobster rope. So my, my father started, his own rope mill, much smaller, um, but took all the best ideas from like 30 or 40 years of innovation 
and made these machines and con- and used these concepts that have been developed and made uh, a great mill. So much of the rope making in New England, in this country, maybe even outside the country, came from Crow Rope, him and his team. And having him in my life was, I mean, I spent a lot of time with him. <clears throat> we would go to, he had like a, a houseboat, we called it, um, a used yacht. And we would go to Vinyl Haven almost every weekend in the summer. I had this amazing childhood I was blessed with and I'm really thankful for. Uh, and we would go to Vinyl Haven or North Haven or wherever, somewhere in Maine, and we'd anchor up and spend the weekend and go clamming and fishing and whatever else we might do and just spend time on the boat together. But he was always talking about, you know, what we what we wanted to do and or I was I don't know about what we want to do, just more passionate about having your own business and, and making things. And he was he always treated us like adults as children and always had like great projects ready for us and couldn't wait to do them. And whether it was making something out of plaster or I remember one year we did these like um, intense glass candy gingerbread houses and all these different things. But he was really a neat guy and uh, he was very forward. He wasn't perfect like any of us. And, uh, you know, it could certainly come off as rash and maybe even rude to a lot of people, but he, he was also very encouraging. As my grandfather's uh, company was growing, Crow Rope, some, sometimes competitors would go out of business and he'd buy all their stuff. And he would send a lot of times my father out, out uh, during the winter and he would go basically disassemble all their machines, bring them back up and get them going. Um, so my dad learned a ton through that. So, and also during all that, so there was a one piece of equipment that my grandfather didn't want to use and he, um, gave to my mom and dad and my father got that going, which made like a, uh, monofilament fiber that made like backpack straps. And that was a, a good business for a while. My dad started this, like I said, he would go down as a lobsterman, you know, it was very quiet in the winter. Now guys go more year round. There's more to catch, but at that time there wasn't any money to make. So in the winter time, my grandfather would send him to some place that he had bought, and he would disassemble all the machinery and bring it back to Maine and and put it together and help get it going. And he was always naturally very mechanically inclined, and he's just a super capable guy that with electrical, mechanical things, definitely entrepreneur-oriented mindset, uh, very bold and gutsy, is not scared to make moves, but also is very realistic. But uh, so he started Highliner Rope, which is still running today, where, where my grandfather's lace mill first was, and which burned down. My dad built a different, different building. Um, but I couldn't be more thankful for my dad. He always took me hunting and fishing. We did everything together. And he'd talk about business. We'd talk about business some, um, but he never pushed it on me to be an entrepreneur. He just showed me um, in his work and what he did, what it was to be one. 
and all the, you know, I lived and saw all the pros and cons. Yeah, you can get a lot of time off and create your own schedule at times, but other times you might be doing 100 hours and, and have the stress of making payroll and, you know, when things go wrong, it's all on you and, and how that affects you and your family. So he's a great guy and I'm thankful for him and he continues to run the business today and he's got a good team. You know, he's been a obviously a huge influence on me and so he started as a lobsterman. He was a lobsterman, of course, like I said earlier, you know, same time I was, just as soon as he could get on a boat, he was lobstering. He graduated early from high school. I think he was 16 or 17 because he wanted to go lobstering. So he did everything he had to do to graduate early. And so he came out and I think he was, he went really hard. Um, not that it's, I think he was making more money than his teachers by the time he got done in high school at the time. And uh, he built a 41-foot boat, which at the time was like unheard of. A 34-foot boat was a big one. And so he was just always kind of innovative in that way and, and gutsy. Uh, he always worked hard, very hard. And he loved lobstering. He loved what it was. He loved the, the pure fishing and then he could make some money. Um, it did become where there was a lot more. It wasn't what he was used to, so he didn't like it <clears throat> as much. And, uh, you know, the rope company had started was doing well enough, so he did kind of retire. I don't know if you ever fully retire as a lobsterman. You always kind of keep your license and it's out there, but um, and it's part of your roots. But he did stop a few years ago um, and just, just, just runs the Highlander rope now. And they make quality rope, a lot of rope with a few guys and they would sell to local fishermen, local lobstermen and some crab fishermen in Florida and things like that. Then coming up to uh, me going through school, um, high school, I went to college. Everybody told me to go to college and that was just what you did then, I guess. That was what they were told to do. So I go to college and I go for construction engineering, which I figured by the end of it, I did not like. And uh, so I come out and I go lobstering. But, you know, around the dinner tables is always just talking about business. All the time was a lot of talking about business. Um, and especially my, it wasn't like hard, always hardcore business, you might think of it, but, um, but a lot of encouragement, uh, my grandfather's basically trying to get everybody, every person in his family to start their own business and uh, had tons of ideas. So one of these ideas, when he had his, his when he had crow rope, um, he started making these rope doormats a little bit and uh, they never put a lot of effort into it. Um, so my grandfather was trying to get somebody in our family to get these, to make these rope doormats especially where my dad made rope. Seemed like a pretty good combination. So uh, a couple of people kicked it around um, and I was, I was lobstering and, and it seemed like nobody else wanted to do it. I knew I wanted to start my own business. So I said, hey, this is the best opportunity I have. So it started. And uh, me and my stern man, when you go lobstering, you know, you have a team, helpers, um, call, call them stern men. Uh, me and my stern men 
uh, thankfully my dad you know, made us some rope and gave us big terms to pay them to pay it and, uh, and good price. Thanks dad. And you know, that's another thing. You can't listen to any entrepreneurs. Not that we've made it big or anything, but people have had help. There's bootstrap people out there, but like people have had good breaks, blessings, help, whether or not they talk about it. Like, um, you know, there's always a lot of help and, uh, we're very grateful for that. So we didn't know what we were doing. We had all these random colors and threw these mats together. I can't remember if we made 500 or a thousand, but we, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Um, how do we start selling these things? So, so somehow I found out to go to this local show in Maine, New England made product show and we go and, uh, people lo and behold, start showing up to our booth and buying some things. Very exciting. And, uh, I can remember that. I, I remember the first person that came up to a booth. I'm like, well, how are these people going to be? Are they going to be like hardcore business people like trying to work me down? Like what the first guy that came up to a booth, this guy saw a lot of other shows too. Um, he said, what are your prices? Very sternly. And I kind of, I think I just told him our prices and he just kind of went upside. He went up, up me one side and down the other and just kind of was very mean. And I was like, wow, this is a good start um, <laughs> to just this whole uh, venture. And, uh, but the rest of the show, everybody was really nice. And that was a very rare thing. But uh, so that was it. That was 2013 in March. And we really just started this out of a uh, entrepreneur opportunity, I would say. And uh, pretty quickly we started learning. Like, uh, and because we had the capability, which um, you know, most didn't necessarily have. Um, but this is where my, my wife's eye, Hannah, uh, Hannah's eye comes in. But a lot of people were doing the bright colors and more like this coastal lobstering vibe, which is great. But I, one thing I did know, I knew we had to sell things. Um, but I also, I knew we had to differentiate, like, why would they buy our stuff? Um, like everybody's already doing these other things. So, so we really got into the really design forward patterns, colors is really, was about color in a lot of neutrals. Um, the brights are really cool and a lot of really pretty and you have to be very careful how you, you know, put those together and they're great for beaches and cottages and on. They're good for a lot of things, but you don't always want to pull the trigger on those brights to, for your house. You know, a lot of times, most of us want to be safe and get a neutral color that matches the house and everything and blends timelessly. So, um, we really, you know, just kept leaning into that more, you know, I was lobstering full time. Uh, we got married, started this business right after we got married, got married in September of 2012. And when we launched this spring of 2013, and uh, so lobstering, doing this, we were making some mats and we hired some people in-house and that didn't work out so great. Then we got into more of the cottage industry, people making these at their homes, which we had a, a great family or two making those. And we're really um, thankful for them. And uh, so, yeah, 
storing, boxing, shipping, lobstering, doing it all, Hannah and I. And um, it was a lot. And it was tiring. And uh, there was times you're just like, what am I, what am I even doing this for? We're making you money. Uh, at least we were putting, you know, I never, we didn't take any money out of the company for a long time, years. Um, and, but I knew like, we just had to keep sales growing. Um, I didn't know much about business, but I didn't know that. So, but there was many times, you know, three or four years into it, just like, and then I hired a business consultant and he basically, and he was very expensive, um, low for locally anyway. And he basically called it a hobby. And, um, you know, there was a point there I had him for two or three years, like, Hey, this is no longer a hobby. Now you can call this a business. And, uh, it was just, it was a lot. And, but you know, there's a lot of good things going to the trade shows is, is good. They're also exhausting. They're not, they're certainly not the fairy tale you think they're going to be when you go to these different trade shows and you're going to go out and visit a bunch of things. It's mostly like we get there, spend the minimal amount of time and go to work and you work hard and you meet a lot of good people. Um, but it is, uh, many times exhausting. I remember going, I, we'd go to this trade show in Atlanta and one time I went, I hauled through my traps. At that time it was three days. I was exhausted. Flew down to Atlanta that night, started setting up, set up some the next day, flew home, hauled for three days, and then flew back down, set up the rest of my booth, and then did the show for a week. Um, and that was, I was very tired. <laughs> At first we're, we're, bringing these into my dad's boat shop, warehousing them, throwing them in boxes. Boxes you basically would push at the time was 70 pounds was the limit until you got an overcharge. So pretty much every box is 55 to 70 pounds. And I just remember coming in from lobstering and needing to pack like 13 or 14 boxes <laughs> and just being, you know, run down. And thankfully Hannah would help sometimes and, and, uh, you know, but you get to those moments again where you're just like, what is this? Is this worth it? What are we, what are we really doing here? Um, not that everything's about making money, but at that time it, it certainly was more about making money than anything for us and, uh, surviving just, just to be, just to have a business. And, uh, you know, so you got to work through those things. I started trying to become a, a true business owner. So I really started studying the craft of business and being a leader, entrepreneur. I started listening to a lot of great podcasts. Entree Leadership was a great one, and they get you on a lot of other good resources. And it was like, why do we exist? Um, we don't want to just do this to make money. Uh, so I just, I boy, I've wrestled with that for many years. And so we had to basically start forming this company into something like, why do we exist? And how do we, you know, even if it's what we're doing right now doesn't line up, how do we, how do we get it there? Um, so started going through a, a lot of that, that kind of process, figuring out what we're passionate about, what we're great at, what our niche is, um, maybe what we're experts at and why we want to show up to work every day and, and, and do what we do. And come to find out, I can, rem we're really passionate about quality and design. 
we we love making things look really well. We want them to be intentionally made. We love when they have a story um, that they're very practical, functional, you know, form and function. And to really get like passion going, I think of my grandfather, the one that um, had crow rope. He, I can remember being in his garage. He would always buy. So after he sold the company, he never stopped working. He'd buy these old machines. It might be a knitting machine or braider, which makes rope. Um, all these different machines that would manufacture different types of products made with like fiber. Uh, he had tons of ideas. But I can remember being in, his, in the garage with him, you know, mid-90s, and he'd be working on something and, and like he might have a wrench or something. And, uh, you know, you have a bolt and you're trying to turn a wrench and, and the bolt would, would round or the, br- the wrench would break or something, you know, something would round in there where it wasn't good anymore and it would cause a lot of headaches and problem. I can remember him, you know, looking at that and saying, yep, made in China. And he'd chuck that thing. And that was really the start of, um, you know, like products going, it was this this period in time of products that we didn't even know anything different, I think, in in America at the time. Like they were just making quality stuff because that's what what people wanted. It was this transition into, hey, we're going to make the stuff look the same, but now it doesn't really work that well. So, um, you know, we were very passionate about making really good stuff. And that's the only way we want to make it. Uh, <clears throat> we're not the original creators of rope doormats. And so we're thankful for the people ahead of us. But I also saw, as I looked at rope doormats, I was like, we wanted to be different. So we made them differently. But also I was like, I think these things can be really nice, like next level nice. Um, so we just, you know, we're really intense about quality and how the corners were and how the mat lays and everything else. Um, so we're really passionate about that. And then we got to combine what I cannot leave out about the origin of the rope company and myself and my wife is nothing. I can't explain it better than just God, G O D God. Um, and we're people of faith. I, gave my life to Christ when I was 20 years old and it took me a while to really kind of walk with him and, and, and um, have a relationship with God. Um, I would say I didn't really do that till I was 27, 28, you know, I started the business when I was 24. And, um, so I had, you know, that's our why, like, that's what makes us like we, everything is God's and we're a steward, you know, this business we're be a steward of for him to, to glorify him. So people can see him through us. And, uh, so that's how we see it, that, that this business is his and we want to do all we can with it, um, for him. Um, which really means taking care of others, helping others, being others focused, having integrity, knowing God's word and doing our best to live by that. Of course, we're, we're not perfect and we screw up all the time. And, and if you ever meet me, you will see where I'm not uh, perfect in many ways. 
and uh, I'm sure maybe even a hypocrite uh, many times and not maybe, but certainly. And, uh, you know, those things combined that, that is, you know, ROI, why I get up. So I want to have, make the best company I can and treat our team and everybody we come in contact the best I can and be others focused. And, you know, it's a lot of times that it doesn't come super easy to me. Um, so, but incorporating that, that with the company is that, that shows and, uh, we've just more started doing is, is giving, uh, well, we've been giving for a while, but of our time and hours and, and not just, um, you know, in, in, in support and <clears throat> financial support, uh, for other places. So we want to get into the local community and, and, uh, really do some, some good things for people and support good causes. Um, so I'd say that's our biggest why. Um, that doesn't mean that every member of our team forever, for always, we don't expect them to have the same faith, nor would we um, discriminate in any way of people who don't. Uh, but they would certainly need to know that when they signed up about um, what the founders and uh, what we're really, you know, ultimately trying to do as as owners of the company. Um, but we we love timeless, functional, practical, beautiful items and making really good stuff for people that, that want beauty. They want something to last. Um, that's, that's what we want to do. That's who we are. Uh, and that's why we started this podcast also. Um, so, that's, that's our why. That's why we're here. That's what we talk about now, you know, um, in our, in our meetings and we're, we're excited about it. You know, a huge thing to us is our, uh, finding the right partners. Uh, one way, you know, in sales, we, we experimented with a couple of rep groups. So we initially started selling just wholesale. So just to like stores, um, and then they would resell it. And we experiment with rep groups so you can hire a rep group and then they go and sell your stuff with you. But, you know, our reputation is everything and we're trying to create a special um, brand and a special thing, entity, and the reputation is everything. So we don't know who these people are. You hire a rep group. You don't know each person and what they're doing and how they represent you. So... Um, so we really have never not gone that, gone that way. Uh, we did just recently hire a salesperson and I mean, they're the face of the company, right? They need to have the same core values that you have. So, but these partnerships, you know, other people that are really passionate about and their customers about making great stuff and buying great stuff that you take it home and maybe you use it a lot, maybe you don't. Um, I think quality, a lot of times, a great indicator of quality is that you don't even notice it. Like it's just doing its job. Everything we design, 
create is, is very intentional. Like we just created this runner size doormat and I don't believe there's anything else there out there really like it. You have your normal, you know, things that go with the double doors, the sliders. I don't know if they're usually three by six, maybe this is 26 inches by six feet. So proportionally, when you look at something, it just looks great at a house. I feel like sometimes the three by sixes look a little gummy. Um, not always, but sometimes they can, let's say. These look sleek. They fit right in. They're big enough to put your foot down, no problem, as you step in or out. But we put a lot of time, we tried a lot of different sizes for that, and we said, that's the one. You know, we tried ourselves, and we said, this is, this is a, a great size, a great fit. And we've really done that with everything we've ever done. You know, if we're going to doing a new size or a new color, um, we just put a lot of time and effort and focus. We're trying to grow and continue to learn who we are and put, put great stuff out there. There was a time that we just kind of, you know, kind of level out. And, but then we all of a sudden started getting noticed more and more by interior designers and other, let's say, professional curators. There was, I think our first big publication was Remodelista and they put into words almost better than certainly what I could have at the time explain to people what we do, um, that we're not nichey kitschy, that we are timeless, durable, and made with intention and with a story. That was very exciting. And we, we definitely saw, you know, things, think things grow then. And we had a Washington post article, that kind of went viral. I didn't realize when, when one paper does an article, a lot of times a bunch of other major, other newspapers will pick it up. And it was something like, you know, top doormats. And, and then later on the year, they did another one called best doormat, uh, best of 2023. And we were the only doormat featured. So, you know, these things happen and you start to grow a little more Then we, we finally made a website and said, well, we sell wholesale, but to show our wholesale customers, we might as well just start selling things on our own website too. We started doing that and we never put any, we made it, but we never put any effort into it. We never marketed it. We still really haven't. Um, we've put more in time now and effort and money and everything into making a beautiful website and one that's easy to use, you know, it's very intentionally made, but we've never, we haven't really ever done any marketing of any kind, advertising, I would say. So, you know, we start to take off a little bit more and then we met, uh, this company came to see us at, at, a at a trade show called food 52. We're still a good customer today. And they decided to make a video with us, uh, about, about the rope company or they asked us and we said, yes, we, we'd love to do that with you. And that was just a really neat experience. They had great people, good interviewers, lots of talent, and they made a, uh, a really cool video on the rope company. It's not, maybe it's not the one that we would make. It feels very Food 52, 
but it's a really neat video and you know, it's just part another step and like, whoa, this is actually happening. We're more of a company now. And then basically COVID happens and everybody's at home buying things. I mean, everybody, we all kind of shut down for a week or two, but then everybody's at home buying things. And thankfully we had some good online relationships and started selling a lot of product and we couldn't keep up. And then we had to tell some people they couldn't get, they couldn't uh, have their stuff. And that was, you know, that was a blessing. It was very hard and stressful at the same time as I'm sure a lot of people can relate. Just, you know, sales are amazing, but it's exhausting for, you just couldn't get anything. You couldn't speak to people the way you needed to. Um, had to let a lot of people down and disappoint people. And, uh, you know, I was also, I was still lobstering and, and tired and, and wasn't doing the best job of, of really being there for at the one, at the time we had one main, um, employee, Renee was basically running the company. Thank you, Renee. And it was great. And, but that's between me not being there for a lot of support, um, not really understanding what she was going through, talking with all these people and, and just the COVID rush. I mean, it was just so many customers that, you know, Hey, where's my stuff? What's going on here? Um, over things that were out of our control, but learning how to do all that, I just, it just, poor Renee, it just burned her out and, um, you know, I'll take all the blame I can, but it, uh, you know, so that's growth, but with that, you know, comes pain. And I learned a lot, a lot out of that, but at the same, and then at the same time, so it was time to hire new team members and, uh, change as a leader, as a business owner myself. And that was about the time that we decided, you know, we prayed about it a lot and it seemed like it was, it really felt like, okay, we've got two new children, young children, and the business is doing okay. It's time to either, you know, I'm working 60 to 90 hours a week between lobstering and the rope company, maybe more than that. And I'm too tired to be who I need to be for anybody. I'm just more of a half grouchy self. You know, what are we doing? So, you know, we'd done this and we had really at that point come a long ways in, in what we'd call, you know, Hey, God, this is your company. What do you want us to do? Prayed about it a lot. And it was pretty clear to us that we should, which is a huge leap of faith. Because lobstering provided well for us for ever since we were together and ever since I was very little. And same for her family and mine. Um, to put lobstering aside, at least for now. And uh, to go all in on the rope company. And so that's what we did. And it's been... This will be my second season, not lobstering. I do miss a lot of aspects of it and definitely hope to get more into it on either a very small scale or maybe a little bit bigger scale someday. Um, but right now we're all in on this company and we're excited about it. 
and we're, we we love to see where it grows. But at the same time, you know, <clears throat> this is also the period as I'm talking right now when you're coming off the when sales were booming for COVID for everybody, and now they're slower. So there's a lot of growth going on and and learning. 